0: Have you ever been lost? I remember being probably 8, 9 years old and my brother and I being on a bike ride and we wandered very far away from home. Somehow we ended up not far from the old Idora Park and living on the west side on Rhoda Avenue that was quite a few miles away. But I remember dutifully following my brother and, uh, you know, my brother was always the world to me. And so he seemed confident that we weren't lost. And so I just kept pedaling behind him and following him. But I think it was when we saw Idora Park that we realized, yeah, we're lost. We, we have no idea where we're at. By God's grace and mercy, we did eventually make our way home. It is not a good feeling being lost. I can remember another occasion when we were traveling to Cameroon, Africa, by way of spending a day in Paris, France, and we were lost in the subways in France. And it's one thing to be lost, It's another thing to be lost in another country when you don't speak the language of that country. It can be a very fearful thing being lost. Well, when we look at the book of Leviticus, in a very real sense, it's highlighting the way back home. God's way back home for ancient Israel, because indeed, from the opening pages of Genesis, man had become lost. God had created Adam and Eve in this lush garden in communion and fellowship and a wonderful relationship with Him. But because they had rebelled against their Creator, they were driven out of the Garden of Eden and they were lost. And man would seek to find his way back to God through various different means. For instance, the Tower of Babel, man trying to ascend his and her way back to God, but it would only be through God coming down to man in Abraham and revealing himself to Abraham that God begins to reveal the way back to him. And while this ancient book of Leviticus seems odd at first glance, hopefully you're able to see that Leviticus comes and speaks to us in pictures and in types that are ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus himself. And so we're going to trace four themes throughout the book of Leviticus that I think is going to help us to see something of the gospel according to Leviticus. First is to believe in the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. Sometimes we use that word sin today in, in, in the general context of our culture. And you mention the word sin, you think, oh, that's something really bad. Uh, but hopefully you're able to see as we've gone through the book of Leviticus that sin is far more broad than the really serious misdeeds of humanity. And f- for instance, when we look at Leviticus chapter 4, In verse 1, it says, Then the Lord spoke, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. If any person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them. And so, Leviticus chapter 4, with what is called the sin offerings or the purification offerings, addresses the area of what we might call unintentional sins. Same thing in chapter 4, verse 13 and 14. Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord commanded not to be done and they become guilty when the sin they have committed becomes known. So again, Moses is tracing sins that a person commits without even realizing it and then comes to a knowledge, oh, I did that. Hopefully as we've been going through the book of Leviticus, you're able to see that sin is a lot more frequent in our lives than what we realize. And again, I understand it's not very popular to talk about sin. In fact, in our culture, the greatest sin you can commit is hurting somebody else's feelings. But the reality is, is we have to talk about sin if we are going to understand the solution to sin. Perhaps an illustration might help you to understand this. Imagine with me for a moment, you uh, hear some creaking in your car as you're driving, and you take it to the mechanic. And the mechanic inspects your car and tells you that, uh, there 's parts that are rusted underneath right by the axle of the wheel, and if you continue driving this car the me- the wheel might just fall off while you 're driving and you respond by saying, How dare you talk about my car like that? How dare you you're you 're offending me, and of course, you take your car to Another mechanic and he tells you the same thing and you give him an earful for offending you by telling you what's wrong with your car and telling you the expense that it's going to cost you. Now, of course, this is a silly illustration as you rail against the judgmentalism of the mechanics. But the reality is, is that if you don't listen to the mechanic, you are in serious danger. If you don't find a solution to that problem, and granted, I get the feeling—you know—you get the—you know—when you take the car to the mechanic and you get that phone call and they give you the estimate before they start working, it can be a very bad feeling, right? In fact, sometimes picking up the phone, you can feel your stomach dropping. What is this going to cost me? But sometimes we have to. Experience that bad feeling to understand properly the right solution. Similarly, even in the the most hopeful part of the book of Leviticus, it traces out the sins and rebellion of the Israelites. Look at Leviticus chapter 16, verse 21 and 22. It says, then Aaron, and this is in the context of that great day of atonement ceremony where there was a lot cast for the two goats, and the one goat is to be sacrificed unto the Lord. The other goat is to be sent out into the desert. And this is the the context of this is when when he's laying his hands on that goat that is a picture of, of Israel's sins being sent away as far as the east is from the west, and it says in Leviticus sixteen twenty one, Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all the iniquities in, uh, to a solitary line, l- solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. So notice even just the different synonyms for sin in, this, in these verses. He mentions iniquities several times. He mentions transgressions. He mentions sins. Sins, uh, as it's translated here, is the idea of missing the mark of God's standard. Iniquities highlights uh, the twisted and perverse nature of sin, uh, the way in which humanity twists what, uh, what God has given. And transgressions is the idea of rebellion against the king. And so all this language highlights really the problem of ancient Israel, but also our problem today is that we are natural born rebels. It's a fascinating thing. You don't have to teach children how to lie, how to fight, how to bicker with one another, how to complain, because that's just in us. From our earliest days, it's in us. And sin always brings disruption in relationships. if you snap at a coworker or friend, what has just happened to that relationship now all of a sudden there's distance in that relationship there's disruption in that relationship. if you lie or slander against somebody else and and they become aware of it all of a sudden now there's a rupture in that relationship. If I fail to remember my anniversary, there is disruption in my relationship with my spouse. In a similar way, because of man's rebellion, there is a disruption in our relationship with God. We see it from the opening pages of Genesis It was immediately after Adam and Eve had rebelled against their creator and had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that all of a sudden there was a disruption in their relationship. All of a sudden they were running from God. They were hiding themselves from God. And ultimately they found themselves outside of Eden. Perhaps that's where you find yourself this morning, outside of a relationship with God, away from him. Well, this is what Leviticus, this is the good news that Leviticus gives us the way back. But before we get to that good news, we have to understand sin and, and believing in sin is always in the context of this relationship with our Creator. So we need to not only believe in the sinfulness of sin, we need to believe in the holiness of God. Is that not a theme throughout the book of Leviticus? In fact, many have summarized the entire book of Leviticus as holiness. God's holiness and the holiness that is required of Him. What is the holiness of God? Well... As we teach the young people here at Sovereign Grace Chapel, we ask the question, is God just like us? What they have memorized is, no, God is distinct and devoted to himself. God is distinct and devoted to himself. God's holiness is his otherness, just like the, the dishes uh, in the tabernacle that were to be used by the priest, they were to be set apart and used only for that purpose. These dishes you wouldn't, you know, bring home, and, you know, the priest wouldn't bring home and have his wife cook something in one of those dishes or eat off of those, one of those dishes outside. They were specifically devoted to the worship of the true and living God in the tabernacle. So God's holiness is his being distinct and devoted to himself. It also highlights his, his, his moral holiness, that he is perfectly righteous in all of his character. We, we read earlier... Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 and 45, which calls Israel to be holy, and and it's based upon God's holiness. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not make yourself unclean with any of the swarming things that swarm on the earth. For I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus, you shall be holy. Why? For I am... Holy, Because God is perfectly holy, perfectly set apart from any taint of sin and rebellion that sin and rebellion cannot coexist with this holy God. We have a water filter at home to take out all the impurities. You know, it's always disturbing thing when you find out about a boil alert, you know, days after you're supposed to be boiling your water and they're telling you that there's fecal matter possibly in your water, so, better to have a water filter. And so, we, you know, we drop the water on top of this water filter and it kind of trickles down. Well, well, how much poison, how much cyanide do you need to taint and contaminate a five-gallon jug of pure water? I don't know. (laughs) But I'm guessing not much. It doesn't take much to contaminate pure water. In a similar way, it doesn't take much rebellion against the Creator to taint As we're seeing, even the tabernacle, the holy space in which people approach God. Of course, you cannot contaminate God himself, but he just simply will not dwell with sin and rebellion. God is a holy God. He says this in Leviticus 19:2, Thus you shall thus you are to be holy to me for I the Lord am holy. I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. And of course this is classically illustrated in that disturbing day in chapter 10 in which Aaron's sons on their first day on the job, they offer strange fire in Leviticus chapter 10 and verse 1. You remember that? It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord. And consumed them and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy and before all people, I will be honored. So Nadab and Abihu, they do something they are not supposed to do. They, They offer this strange fire before the Lord that God had not commanded them, and God comes and kills them. Not really the Santa Claus version of God that we're accustomed to. and Moses interprets this as they were not regarding God as what holy they were not regarding God as holy and this is this is again this is shocking to us right but again similar to the, the, as the tabernacle was a kind of a replica of Eden as the dwelling place of God, when we go back to the Garden of Eden, I simply ask the question how many sins did it take for Adam and Eve to be thrust out of the garden? Just one. Just one. This is a point that I often like to bring up when I'm talking with Muslim friends. Because in Islam, the Quran does teach of a fall, a rebellion of Adam and Eve in, in the garden of paradise. And Islam, being the system that it is, it teaches that you just do as much good, and one day, if your good outweighs your bad, that Allah just might wink at your sins and allow you into paradise. And so you just got to keep. Keep doing good, doing good, and hope, hope the scales of the balance of God justice, God's justice and your good deeds outweigh your bad. Well, I often will tell my Muslim friends, well, let me ask you, how many sins did it take Adam and Eve to get thrown out of paradise? Just one. So how many of you committed and you think you can get into paradise? In a similar way, the true and living God of the Bible, not the God of the Koran, his standard of holiness is such that it's a high standard. And again, this is shocking to us. It's shocking to us so, because we are so accustomed to God's grace, right? Right? You know, as R.C. Sproul said, we shouldn't sing amazing grace, we should sing amazing justice, because that's what we're really amazed at, is his justice. In fact, R.C. Sproul gives this classic illustration, I think, that helps us to understand God's justice and how we often take it for granted. He was teaching over in uh, New Wilmington at Westminster College, and it was uh, a, a freshman class of students, And there was three papers that were assigned for the fall semester, and one was due at the end of September, the other due at the end of October, the other due at the end of November, and he had like 200 students in class, and the first paper's due at the end of September, and 50 students don't have the paper ready, and of course... Some delegates of these 50 students begin pleading with Dr. Sproul, please, you know, we're freshmen, we're adjusting to freshman life as students. Perhaps you can show us mercy and not give us F's for not having the paper turned in. Just give us the weekend and we'll turn it in. And so he says, okay, okay, okay. I'll show grace, I'll show mercy. And then comes the end of October, second paper's due. This time, a hundred students don't have paper in hand. And of course, then come the begging and pleading for mercy and grace from Dr. Sproul, and they win him over, and he says, okay, okay, you have to the weekend. And then comes... The third paper at the end of November. At this point, Dr. Sproul a little bit irritated. Okay? And, uh, and so he starts going down the list. Adams, do you have your paper? No, Dr. Sproul, but I'll get it to you over the weekend. F. Alexander, do you have your paper? No, Dr. Sproul, but I'll have it in the... F. <laughs> not fair why are you giving me an F Adams you want fair says here according to my grade book the first paper you also didn't turn in on time so you get an F for that you want fair Alexander do you want fair now what's the point they had grown so accustomed to mercy that they were shocked by justice in a similar way we get shocked by justice but we must behold the holiness of god we ought not to think that god is just like us he can wink at sins he does not Well, that's all bad news, in case you're wondering. But I want to give you some good news this morning. It is gospel, the gospel according to Leviticus. But you do need to understand the context of the good news is bad news. Good news isn't really good unless, unless you understand the bad news. And so, thirdly, to believe in the sacrifice that God provides. Believe in the sacrifice that God provides. One commentator, Jay Scler, says the Israelites faced a burning question at, at this point in their history. How can the holy and pure king of the universe dwell in our midst without his holiness melting us in our sin and impurity? Then he says, the answer is, Atonement. The answer is atonement. And this is how the book of Leviticus starts out at the gate, right? We, we saw it in the first five weeks in the book of Leviticus. He lays out five different sacrifices. That in order for God to dwell with his people, their lives must be filtered and purified through sacrifice. And the first of these sacrifices is, is what I believe is the primary atoning sacrifice, the primary substitutionary sacrifice that he gave the Israelites. It's called the burnt offering. We also call it the ascension offering, the whole burnt offering, where the entire animal is consumed on the altar. Turn to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be, notice the language here, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the offering, that it may be accepted for him, to make atonement on his behalf. On his behalf. Notice the language here of substitution. The language here of acceptance. God accepting the sinner, the rebel, on the basis of an animal experiencing the death that that sinner deserves. That's the first offering. The second one is the grain offering. Or we called this the tribute offering. That's in chapter 2 of Leviticus. Now if anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, chapter 2 verse 1, His offering shall be a fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. This was the one non-bloody sacrifice and it, it's, it's translated the grain offering, but it's really the, the tribute offering. This is the offering of one bringing their gift, and it's in response to the atonement that is made in the burnt offering. It's a response of homage to the true and living God. Just as a subservient nation might bring tribute to a stronger nation, so the Israelite would bring this grain offering, signifying, I am subjecting myself to you. My life is in your hands. And this is really the response of the gospel, right? This is this is uh Romans 12 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and pleasing unto God. This is your spiritual service of worship. And then we saw the sacrifice of the peace offering. This is in chapter 3. And then it's elaborated on in chapter 7. In verse 11 through 16, in fact, that's the verse that I'll read, chapter 7, verse 11 through 16. Now this is the law of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, which shall be presented to the Lord. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving, then along with the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil, the cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil with the sacrifice of peace offerings for thanksgiving he shall present his offering with cakes of leavened bread. Of this he shall present one of every offering as a contribution to the Lord. It shall belong to the priest who sprinkles the blood of the peace offering. Now as for the flesh of the sacrifice of the thanksgiving peace offerings, it shall be eaten on the day of the offering. He shall not leave any of it over until morning. And so... When we saw this, when we looked more closely at this offering, we saw that this peace offering is a kind of communal meal offering, a celebration of the reconciliation and peace that a person has with God. But it's also to be celebrated with other fellow believers. You could invite your family, your friends to this. It was a joyous occasion, it was a barbecue you can enjoy with friends and family. It was probably its closest, closest akin would in, in, as New Testament believers would be the communion that we'll celebrate later on where we eat the wafer and drink the cup together remembering the sacrifice not of the bull or the cow or the lamb but the sacrifice that those other sacrifices pointed to, namely the sacrifice of Jesus. This is why the Apostle Paul, I think he's probably alluding to these peace offerings here when he says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14, it says, For he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and that he might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Paul says Christ himself is our peace. If there's going to be true reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles, and really we can talk about all ethnicities, it's going to come through the blood of the cross. That was the third offering. The fourth offering was the sin offering, or also known as the purification offering or we might even call it the de-sin offering. This was in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3 and 4. If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay it before the Lord. So just like the burnt burnt offering and the sin offering were both atoning offerings. The peace offering is not mentioned as an atoning offering. The grain offering is not mentioned as an atoning offering. But the burnt offering, the sin offering, and then the reparation or restitution or guilt offering were also atoning offerings. But this offering was unique in that it was, it was the one offering where the blood was splashed on the veil. That it had a purifying effect not only on the offerer, but also upon the tabernacle. This was the offering that was used uh, it, with the goat being sacrificed and the blood being splattered. Even in the most holy place and, and splattered kind of on its way out as a kind of cleansing of the tabernacle. It's no wonder that Second Corinthians 5.21, quite perhaps an allusion to this offering, says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. In fact, the NIV has a marginal reading of to be a sin offering on our behalf. And then the last of the offerings... In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 15 to 18, I mentioned it already, the guilt offering. This is probably better understood as a restitution offering or some some call it a reparations offering. This is the offering you bring when you've stolen something, when you've taken something that's not yours and you're to bring this offering and with it, 125% of what you've done taken If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against the Lord's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord a ram without defect from the flock according to your valuation in silver by shekels in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing and shall add to it a fifth part of it and give it to the priest. He shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. It will be forgiven him. And we see again, Christ fulfills this offering from Isaiah 53, verse 10. As far as I know, the only passage in the Old Testament that directly references the Messiah as a fulfillment of one of these kinds of offerings. It says in Isaiah 53 and verse 10 But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. Christ himself takes the debt of what we have stolen from God, pays the price that we owe. And of course, all these sacrifices culminate on that great day, the day of atonement. In which the high priest, that one day out of the year, only on that one day could he enter the innermost part of the tabernacle. He would offer the casting of the lots upon the two different goats, and the one goat it, it would be offered on the mercy seat, the innermost part of the tabernacle. And the other goat, outside the tent, both hands would be laid upon that goat and all the sins of Israel would be confessed and that goat would be sent out into the desert. A picture of propitiation satisfying God's justice and of expiation, man's sins being taken away. Well, what's the point of all this? All the point of this is all these pictures and all this blood and all this sacrifice, it culminates in the Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. And so the truth is the same, both old and new. The way back to God is, comes through sacrifice the forgiveness of sins comes through god himself eating the cost and friends this is always the case again i mentioned sin always brings a rupture in relationship when sin has come between you and a friend between you and a spouse, between you and a brother or sister, between you and a coworker, between you and a manager, in order for there to be reconciliation. In order for you to be brought back to peace, the person who has committed the sin needs to own up to it and the other person needs to forgive, and when there is forgiveness, there's always an eating of the cost. Right? because you want to you want to get even you want to get back you've been hurt you've been offended and so if you're going to forgive you accept that hurt you take that hurt in a similar way this is what god has done in christ he's eaten the cost of forgiveness he's paid the price the ransom price of forgiveness He's taken the hurt upon himself on that great day of atonement that we commonly call Good Friday. Where he himself went to the cross of Calvary. Where he himself bore in his body the guilt and punishment that we deserve. He did that. The author of Hebrews says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So friends, I'm getting kind of confused with all the different sacrifices. Let me just simplify. If you just remember the one sacrifice, the single sacrifice that all those sacrifices point to, Because they all culminate and terminate in that great and grand sacrifice upon the cross. But what I want us to see is that both old and new, the way back to God comes through blood sacrifice. Blood sacrifice. And the assumption here in all those sacrifices of the Old Testament and in the sacrifice of Christ in the New Testament is you have to believe. I mean, think about it. I mean, if you're an ancient Israelite, you had to believe. If you were going to take from your own flock, from your own cattle and you're going to travel to wherever the tabernacle was at that point, and different points throughout Israel's history, and then later on in the temple. I mean, you may travel 30 miles, 40 miles, maybe 60 miles on foot, on donkey, bringing your sacrifices, and then you slit the throat of that animal, and it's butchered on the altar, whatever of the different sacrifices you were bringing, you had to believe. You had to believe that when Moses wrote in Leviticus chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7, that when it says, and and thus atonement was made, and he was forgiven of his sins, that God's promise was true. Now as the Bible unfolds, we realize that the animals themselves weren't actually taking the sin. But God was placing the sin on the back of his son who would come thousands of years later. But the promise was still true, although it was not yet fulfilled. The promise was still true, even though the picture had not been fulfilled in its reality. So friend, you, like the ancient Israelites, have to believe. You have to trust that when you, as it were, lay your hands upon the head of Christ, when you come confessing your sin, that your sin is actually dealt with through the blood sacrifice of Jesus, that the way back to God comes through Jesus. The way back to Eden is through Jesus. So friend, again, I simply ask you, what are you trusting in to get back to God? Do you think you can just waltz your way into the presence of God? Well, Nadab and Abihu learned that the hard way. They tried to come to God in a way that he had not told them to come to him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. The apostles declared that salvation is found in no one else in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. For there is no other name given amongst men whereby we must be saved. That's because, as Pastor Chris mentioned earlier, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one sacrifice. And so we come back to God through that sacrifice. And by the way, if, you, if you've been a Christian for a long time, that, you continue to come back to God through that sacrifice. You don't, you don't grow beyond your need for blood atonement. You, you grow in a greater realization and recognition of the need for atonement. It's not that Christ is re-sacrificed or that somebody is re-justified, but you continue in your thinking to remember and believe in the Lord Jesus and the punishment he has taken upon himself. That's why he gave things like the Lord's Supper, Right? He doesn't want us to forget. He said, Do this in remembrance of me. Well, not only do you need to believe in the sinfulness of sin and behold the holiness of God and to to believe in the sacrifice that God provides, you need to believe in the priest that God provides. The priest. Again, you know, in our context, we think we hear the word priest, we think of someone wearing a clerical collar who maybe takes a vow of celibacy or something like that. But the priests in the Old Testament uh, they they played a significant role as representatives of God's people. In, in a very real sense, they were royal priests. In Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 8 through 10. We saw something of the uniform of these priests, which the uniforms were symbolic and and helps us to understand something of what they did. Because it says he then placed a breast piece on him and the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim. He also placed a turban on his head, and the turban at its front, he placed a golden plate, the holy crown, just as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses then took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. The imagery here, the breast piece. Remember we talked about the breast piece having the ephod on it and and on that it had 12 different stones that had the names of all the different tribes of Israel. And so this was this symbolism of the priesthood was one in such that the priest functioning as the mediator to the go-between between God and his people came into the holy presence of God Representing those twelve tribes, having those twelve tribes as it were on his heart. We also see in the symbolism here the, the priest had the urim and the thummim, which were these were uh, probably a kind of uh, a kind of lot casting thing to discern what God was speaking to His people. So they they function uh, in a way where they're they're representing God or representing the people. To God, but also in a revelatory way, where sometimes they were speaking the word of God and they were representing God to the people. And because of that, they had a, a kind of royal attire, they had royal robes in and in a, in a regal crown on their heads. This idea of representation was necessary. But also, as we see in the book of Leviticus, even in Aaron himself, we saw that in Exodus, right? He Making of the golden calf. But then with Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, as those first high priests and representatives of the Lord, they offered strange fire and are struck dead. And God still in his kindness provided that, that day of atonement in which, which he prescribed the way in which the priest was to come before him. But, 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 but there's this, this longing, this yearning for a better priest because the, the priestly Adam, who was a representative of humanity, failed in the Garden of Eden. Aaron failed. Nadab and Abihu and all the priests of Israel would fail who followed Except one priest. Not of the tribe of Levi, but a priest who the author of Hebrews says was in the order of Melchizedek, a royal priest. One who would function as that perfect mediator who would not need sacrifice for his own sin. Again, as we teach the young people, we ask them what offices has Christ? Answer, Christ has the office of prophet, priest, and king. Next question, how is Christ a priest? He died for us and pleads for us. Next question, why do you need Christ as priest? Answer, because I'm guilty. Not long ago I was asking these questions over the breakfast table and somebody who was doing some work in our house was there and uh, they're not a Christian and usually when I ask these questions I, I go down the line from the oldest to the youngest so that usually the oldest knows it pretty well and the young younger ones will hear it as it goes down the line so why do you need Christ as priest because I'm guilty why do you need Christ as priest because I'm guilty why do you need Christ as priest because I'm guilty and and all of a sudden it kind of dawned on me how unbelievably countercultural this was and there was a little bit of uncomfortableness in the air As each of the children were declaring their own guilt before God. And this person, who, as far as I know, is not a Christian, cried out, But that's why we need Jesus to take our guilt, right? 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 (laughs) And I said, You got it. You got it. That's why we need Jesus to take our guilt. He's the great high priest. Hebrews chapter 9 in verse 24 and 28. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. A mere copy of the true one. In other words, he didn't enter the tabernacle. He entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the priest enters the holy place year by year year by year year by year with blood that is not his own otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world but now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes this judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for the salvation without reference to sin, but to those who eagerly await him. One of the unique things about Christ is that he's not only the sacrifice but he's also the priest who is himself the sacrifice. And he entered into not the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple during his own day, but he entered into heaven itself to be able to present before holy God the perfect sacrifice of himself. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father after he had risen from the dead. And even to this day, he is the high priest of all those who put their faith in him. He is the go-between. He is the mediator. And again, my friends, isn't this often how reconciliation takes place? Not always, but often you need a go-between. You need a mediator. You need maybe another friend to step between and say, hey, hey guys, (laughs) let me help you sort this out. You done wronged her like that and you done did this. You guys just need to get over yourself and forgive one another. In a similar way, Christ himself, he eats the cost of the sacrifice. He stands as the go-between and he brings reconciliation. Of course, God himself had never sinned against humanity, but he was infinitely offended by our sin and the sacrifice had to be made. And a mediator stands between sinners and the holy God but you have to believe you have to believe and you have to come home the way god would have you to come home jesus gives a parable a parable of a father who has a son actually he has two sons We often forget about the other son, the older son. But the younger son tells his father, in essence, I I wish you were dead. Just give me my inheritance and I will be out of your hair. And his father acquiesces and gives him his inheritance that he would have given him upon his death. And the son goes and takes all the wealth that he had just received and he goes and parties with his friends and lives it up. And then famine hits. And all of a sudden this son finds himself sharing lunch with the pigs. And he comes to his senses, he realizes that He's sinned against heaven and he's sinned against his father. And he realizes it's time to go home. It's time to come back to his father. And so what does he do? He journeys his way back. And the shock of the story is that you're expecting the father to, to shame the son You're expecting the father to refuse to take back the son after doing such an awful thing. But he doesn't, does he? He says, bring out the best robe and put it on my son. Bring out the ring and put it on his finger. (coughs) Slaughter the fattened calf. We're going to celebrate because my son who was lost has now been found. In a very real sense, the father himself takes the shame as he ran out to meet his son. And he celebrates. It's a picture of the gospel. A picture of coming home. In a very real sense, this is what Leviticus gives us. It gives us the way back home. The way back to relationship with God. And so again I appeal to you my friend however many steps you've taken away from God you can come back to him through the blood sacrifice of Christ and through the priesthood of Christ. Turn to him. Let's pray.